Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington, and joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. I'm pretty good. I'm so excited. It is the first day of opinions for this term, and also first day of Hanukkah. And it was the first uh, week of snow we've seen, at least up here. A week of first. I I would just say happy Hanukkah to Justices Kagan and Breyer. And as you mentioned, yeah, the four opinions that were handed down this morning, it's kind of refreshing to, to see things that were actually signed by justices of the court as opposed to these per curiam rulings that we've been getting in recent weeks that obviously, you know, who knows who's the author behind um, these. I just want to also mention later in the show, we're going to be talking about the big election cases that are now pending before the court. But why don't you kick us off, Natalie, and talk about, you know, one of the rulings that you found interesting that were handed down this morning. Yeah, well, so just before getting into that, uh, so four opinions, all unanimous and all without Justice Barrett participating since they were argued before she joined the court. Um, But one opinion that was particularly interesting uh, to us just, you know, as legal nerds was the Delaware court case that had been challenging the state's 122-year-old requirements that, A, its top three courts have a balance between major political parties, which then also B, requires that judges have a major party political affiliation, uh, either Republican or Democrat. So the court ended up basically leaving in place these requirements, but they didn't rule on the merits. They actually ended up ruling on the fact that the lawyer bringing the challenge had no standing. So what was the standing thing? Because I I know that, you know, he, this plaintiff had essentially said that he had maybe thought of, you know, applying to one of these judgeships. I mean, what what did the court say about his arguments there? Yes. So John R. Adams uh, had sued back in 2017. And he was like, well, this rule wrongfully blocks me from becoming a judge because I would have to join a major political party. But the court said Adams, who had actually changed his party p- affiliation from Democrat to independent right before filing the suit, never showed that, you know, he was actually injured Uh, beyond, say, a general grievance, um, and never showed that he was likely to apply to become a judge um, and was blocked by these requirements. Right. So the court says, you know, it's one thing to say at some point you're going to actually apply for one of these judgeships, but uh, it's another thing to actually do it. And and since you didn't do it, that's not enough to to get in the courthouse doors. Exactly. So for now, the the rules stand uh, for what will seem like at least 123 years. <laughs> Surely good news for uh, Del- Delaware's judiciary there. Uh, but moving on to another decision that I thought was interesting was in a case I've been paying attention to involving um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So in a decision called Tanzan versus Tanver, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that a group of Muslim plaintiffs can seek money damages from individual FBI agents who had allegedly placed them on the no-fly list after the plaintiffs refuse to become informants and what they say spy on the Muslim community. The issue in the case was whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allows plaintiffs to seek money damages against uh, government officials in their individual capacity. And the court unanimously held that it does, uh, since the law says in its terms that litigants can seek, quote, appropriate relief. They said appropriate relief can mean money damages in some circumstances. So this allows the no-fly suit to go forward and paves the way for money damages against other government officials who impose, uh, quote, substantial burdens on religious exercise absent a compelling interest pursued through the least restrictive means. 
So basically opens up another major legal avenue for, for people who've been affected by this. Right. A big win for uh, religious freedom advocates. So that covers the, the two top ones that we were looking at uh, this week. We'll, we'll see if, uh, if we get any more opinions before uh, the end of the year. We shall see. But in the meantime, we have a lot more to talk about in the form of some of the election litigation that's been pending before the court that I mentioned uh, earlier in the show. Uh, this was kind of a big week for election cases at the Supreme Court. Um, Tuesday made a ton of headlines when uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced a new lawsuit that he was filing directly in the Supreme Court to essentially overturn the election. And uh, Paxton named Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin as defendants in the case, saying that they usurped the authority of the legislator, legislatures in their states to change election rules with you know the increase in mail-in voting during the pandemic. And yeah, this one's a, a bit interesting because, as, as you mentioned, he, he filed it directly. So there was no lower court proceedings on this. That's right. Paxton took advantage of the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, which gives the court exclusive authority to hear disputes between two or more states. So, you know, he's saying that he couldn't have even filed this in the lower courts if he wanted to under the uh, court's original jurisdiction. Um, mandate from the Constitution. So what is he actually asking for? So Paxton wants the court to essentially throw out the votes of these four states, which, you know, gave uh, President-elect Joe Biden his victory in the Electoral College that's slated for Monday. And Paxton wants the Supreme Court to essentially nullify uh, the votes of those states and, um, you know, essentially overhaul the results of the 2020 presidential election, a incredibly aggressive ask uh, that would is essentially unprecedented in the history of the American judicial system um, in terms of its degree of judicial intervention in an election. Um, but this seems to be something that, you know, President Trump has been clamoring for. He He's often expressed kind of dissatisfaction with the legal strategy so far and has been you know, hoping for one big, beautiful lawsuit, as he called it, to kind of give him that second term that he thinks he's rightfully entitled to. I should just mention that legal experts, of course, strongly disagree and see, you know, virtually no merit in this case and, you know, potential for the Supreme Court to actually take it up, much less, you know, uh, grant the states, um, you know, grant Texas uh, what it's looking for in the case. And a lot of Democratic uh, lawyers are essentially labeling this a political stunt. Well, he, uh, Trump seems so excited. He's actually moved to be part of the case, right? That's right. Yesterday, his lawyer, John Eastman, uh, if listeners may recall the name, is the law professor who kind of floated this birther conspiracy over uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, saying that she might not be actually eligible um, to be vice president. Uh, of course, that's birtherism is something that Donald Trump is no stranger to having floated the, the conspiracy theories about uh, President Barack Obama's origins, but I'm getting a little bit beside the point here. Um, the president's lawyer filed a motion to intervene and join the case, um, saying that you know he has been essentially disenfranchised by the increase in mail-in voting that we saw in last month's election. 
And so the Supreme Court now has to decide what to do with this case. Um, I should say we are expecting a response from the defendant states pretty much, you know, around the time that we're recording this episode. And we could see, you know, a ruling from the Supreme Court shortly thereafter. So, Jimmy, what do you think is going to happen here? Well, I think what we've seen from the Supreme Court is that it basically has no interest in some huge, massive intervention in the election results. Just a day after Texas filed this lawsuit, the Supreme Court actually rejected a separate challenge out of Pennsylvania, where you know a number of Republican candidates were seeking to block Pennsylvania from certifying their election results because of this issue of the use of mail-in voting. But the Supreme Court rejected the you know this application to block the state from certifying its results with a one-sentence order, you know, in no dissents recorded. Um, and so this seems to be the way that a lot of these challenges might end up going. And a lot of election law experts are saying that the court is not interested in a much you know larger scale attack on the results in you know several states as opposed to even just one. And I should also just mention this you know the case that we've been talking about for weeks now, um, also out of Pennsylvania. This one involving like the much narrower issue of the deadline for late arriving ballots. I mean, theoretically, that's not even going to affect the margin in in Pennsylvania because of the number of mail in, late arriving mail in ballots that actually came. And the Supreme Court hasn't even gotten involved in that one. So the idea that it's going to, you know, all of a sudden, you know, become very sympathetic and responsive to Texas's complaints here and desire to essentially, you know, reverse the election results is, uh, you know kind of a long shot to say to put it very uh you know lightly it will be interesting though to see if you know we get another one of those like you know one word one sentence uh decisions or if they might add a little bit more to this one (laughs) somehow well this one seems to be gaining more traction at least on the right i mean in addition to uh, president trump's motion to intervene in the case um you also have I think 17 Republican states now um, that have kind of thrown their weight behind uh, Texas's uh, lawsuit. And so maybe the Supreme Court feels compelled to actually, you know, explain its thinking as opposed to just issuing some one word or signaling that they're not interested whatsoever. Um, It's hard to say. I mean, the Supreme Court, I should say, uh, ordered the response by today. So we're sitting here waiting for it right now. Um, do they have, is that because they want to rule on it quickly and they want to just kind of move past this um, before the Electoral College votes next week? You know, we don't know. But um, this is something we're going to be monitoring closely and we're going to um, update our listeners uh, next time we jump on the air. So we will be seeing, uh, turning though to arguments that did happen this week, um, there was actually a, a fairly interesting one on Monday involving arguments in two cases that uh, centered around Nazi stolen art, which is, you know, like straight out of a movie, right? Like straight out of Nicolas Cage or Indiana Jones. Yeah, this one definitely catches people's eye. Um, the claims, you know, just kind of briefly diving into the, to the, to the pleadings here, but they involved something called the Gulf Treasure of Ecclesiastical Art, from centuries ago that the Nazis apparently coerced, you know, a group of Jewish art dealers um, into selling for like a fraction of the price. So here they are trying to sue Germany um, and there are other claims in the Hungary case, but essentially trying to bring them into, haul them into U.S. courts for things that, you know, happened during World War II. Very fascinating stuff. So why don't you talk about uh, some of the things that the justices were interested in this week? Yeah. So as you said, you know, 
about hauling them into U.S. court. So that's basically what is fundamentally at uh, issue with both these cases, whether the U.S. court system is the appropriate venue to be suing in the first case Hungary and in the second case Germany over these artifacts. Um, It's intriguing because there's like slightly different nuanced fact patterns for both and slightly different fact, you know, nuanced arguments uh, involving the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which lays out, you know, when and where foreign countries have immunity in the U.S. court system. Um, At least from arguments, just very broad strokes. It certainly seemed like the justices were coming down a bit on Hungary, which is arguing this very novel approach to, you know, saying that the court should adopt a new international comity doctrine, that there's this, you know, it would sow international discord and that that's why the court should, you know, stop this suit where and basically like forget about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, right. which... Comedy is that (laughs) word that you hear whenever there's like a a sovereign immunity case where, you know, a foreign government is coming into U.S. courts saying, you know, for purposes of comedy or harmony among the nation states, you should not be suing us because, of course, like, you know, other countries can retaliate against uh, U.S. interests abroad. And so I guess the justices didn't seem to want to go as far as Hungary was proposing it go. Weren't seeing too thrilled. Justice Neil Gorsuch in particular was like struggling to like understand the difference about like what they were proposing versus what like Congress clearly wished to displace when it passed the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in 1970s. And he was like, you know, how will this not produce bedlam? <laughs> Which is, you know, pretty strong words uh, from, from the justice and, and several other justices, you know, had very similar questioning uh, for, for Hungary. On the other side, though, Germany um, seemed to be like it might have a, a bit of a stronger case that its suit should be dropped. Um, the D.C. Circuit had revived its suit. Um, and basically, Germany is arguing that they incorrectly interpreted this exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um so, we'll so a see. much narrower we'll argument. Much narrower argument, much more technical. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see where both of these end up landing in terms of what it might mean for basically shaping how you interpret the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and whether the U.S. court system will be a venue in, in certain circumstances for these kinds of suits. Right, for these kinds of lawsuits that, you know, allege stolen property or other war crimes from some of these countries and potentially these uh, the Supreme Court's decision in the case could you know conceivably open up the doors uh, to, to other plaintiffs. That's really interesting, Natalie. So I think, Jimmy, that just about does it for us for this week. I know next week we're hoping will be our last episode of the term. Oh, our so last sad. episode of 2020. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, there's more. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I, I feel like 2020s just lasted so long. It almost feels like the end of the term, but apologies. End of 2020. We're not there yet. <laughs> We're not there yet. Well, anyway, yeah, I'm really excited for next week's episode, but uh, this week was great too. So thanks for chatting, Natalie. Thanks, Jimmy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith. 
our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Rose Krebs and Emma Whithurt. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the High Court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.